How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Simple. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. The podcast you're listening to has been banned by Vladimir Putin. Himself. On, by, by himself, by himself. Last Friday, he having put listen. out, they had a good listen. And uh, so unfortunately, to our listeners in the Russian Federation, we are very, very sorry that we are banned in the Russian Federation, but we hope that in the future you will be able to hear us again. Now, John, John, today we're going to do the title of the podcast. It's going to be that uplifting title called The Doom Loop. Oh, lovely, Mac. And what we're going to know, we're going to look at the global financial markets, okay? And particularly the bond market and see what has happened in the UK this week. And we're going to go into the weeds of what happened in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could happen anywhere. Not will happen, but could happen anywhere. And the lessons from 2008 was that a small little problem in what was called subprime in August 2007, which was dismissed by everybody, particularly Bear Stearns, the bank that actually owned these assets. said, no, don't worry, it's a small thing. Subprime Mm. in Mm. Arizona or somewhere, you know, somewhere down there in the Sunbelt states, within a year took down the entire global financial system. And the reason is what we call leverage, contagion, people borrowed, et cetera, cross-collateralized, all that stuff. So that's what we're going to talk about. But before I go, before we start, Kilconomics, <laughs> Russell Carroll Kelly. Oh yeah, yeah, go on. Has confirmed that he's going to basically save the global economy. Oh, totally. Totally. It's going to be called Affluenza, the economics of Russell Carroll Kelly. Just confirmed on Kilkenomics. Also, the fantastic English comedian Rosie Holt. Do you know her? She's brilliant. She's just just confirmed fantastic. as well. So we've got Rosie. So and and and, and the, one of the greatest economists in the world is a Korean guy called Ha Jung Chang, and he writes this extraordinary. He's 
written amazing books. One of the great books was 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, which is a deconstruction of capitalism. He's basically- Oh, I, I've, yes. Yeah, yeah. I knew I knew yeah. the name. Brilliant. I read that, yeah, 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 yeah. Really, really yeah. good guy. He's now got a new book out called Edible Economics, where he's taking economics and food and putting them together. And we have him being interviewed <laughs> by Ross Lewis, the Michelin star oh, chef yeah. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. chapter one. So yeah. you've got the chef and the economist talking about the similarities. And it's all about kind of culture and food and where it comes from, the way the economies work. So that'll be good. Anyway, that is Kilkenomics. Get your tickets. They're flying out the door. Kilkenomics.com. And don't forget, we're, we're doing a live podcast. And we yeah. are. Don't forget. I think we could even be nearly sold out. So have a oh. check out that and check out that one. It's your man and myself, Friday night in the Ormond Hotel, I believe, Kilkenny. Kilkenomics.com. Hope to see you there. It's a total hoot. And you know what? We might all learn something as well. Which is even better. <laughs> now, John. David. On the 15th of December, 2021, yeah. we sat down to do a podcast. And it was announced that morning that a musician that you are very partial to, Bruce Springsteen, yes, indeed. had sold his entire back catalogue to Sony for between 500 and 600 million dollars. Okay, the 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 quantum wasn't yes. revealed. And at the time nice. I was saying I don't really like Bruce Springsteen. However, we did make the point and Paul McCully was on that day, was it the case that Bruce Springsteen was the most savvy bond investor in the world? And we made the point that maybe he was. Yes. Because there were clouds beginning to emerge, dark clouds, right? Bruce Springsteen is the George Soros of rock and roll, okay? The deal was extraordinary. That's why they call him the boss, man. He was the boss. He's the boss of the markets. Yeah. Nobody, the timed, nobody timed the bond market like Bruce Springsteen. Fucking chapeau to Bruce Springsteen. I'll explain why, right? So the Sony valued Bruce Springsteen's, and this is all to do with what we're about to talk about now, which is the bond market, how it works. It's going to be a little bit technical today, but we need to understand it because I think we're in for a very rocky time in the next while. And what really pisses me off, right, is that when interest rates were zero, do you remember? Yeah. And we kept saying that Ireland should refinance yes. everything. Yeah, we did. And we kept we saying, refinance everything, issue a perpetual bond. Sort out the housing and do all the whole that. thing. Yeah. Two years ago when interest rates were zero, now interest rates will be 4 or 5% and we've missed the opportunity. And why? Because people, hey, they didn't listen to the podcast, obviously, but because they don't fucking act. Sometimes the market gives you an opportunity. You yeah. can refinance yourself completely. You can put the risk onto investors. You can say, okay, your problem now, because once you've sold the bond, you as the seller doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah, okay? yeah, 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 yeah. And yet, okay, so let's go back to Bruce Springsteen. We can leave that criticism of the NTMA and the Irish authorities, not just the Irish authorities, the Austrians issued 100-year bonds. They took the opportunity, yeah. right? Yeah. We, of course, sat in our hands and said, oh, well, you know, la, 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 and the opportunity is now gone. Now we're in a rate hike environment. Now, what Springsteen, let's come back to Springsteen, right? So Springsteen gets 500 to 600 million. We don't know. But we know that the Springsteen back catalogue was probably generating about $40 million a year. Yeah. So basically Springsteen managed to get these guys to pay 15, 16, 17 times the value. Yeah. When interest rates are at 1%, okay, so so Sony, let's say Sony bought that for 600 million. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interest rates are at 1%. Sony doesn't have 600 million sitting in the bank, so they've got to go and borrow it, right? So they borrowed the 600 million at 1%, so it cost them 6 million. So that's the cost, right? Right. They're getting 40 million, so they're making 34 million. So they're happy. So that's okay. why Springsteen got so much money for the back yeah. catalog. Yeah. 
Now, American corporate interest rates are 4%. So the borrowing that our friends Sony have to do now, okay, imagine how this is costing them now, is about $24 million. So suddenly, the actual value of Bruce Springsteen's back catalogue is $14 million. Right. Or $16 million, not $30 million to them. But Bruce has sold it, so he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> So he's the genius. So Bruce Springsteen shorted the bond market at the most perfect time. On that basis, John, we can play the Bruce Springsteen. Bust. But it actually shows you, you know, and this is what I love about this, that basically somebody's been around for a long time, been selling gigs, been doing gigs, been involved in the real world of mm. business. Yeah. Springsteen probably felt somebody knocked on his door and said, we'll give you 600 million for your back catalogue. And Springsteen says, I don't need it, but it sounds like a lot. And the, and the horse sense, you know what I mean? A common yeah. sense, trading sense of somebody who's been... But he's, he was renowned, you know, Springsteen was renowned for running a really tight ship on his tours and all really? the rest. Oh, yeah, Even yeah, though yeah, the yeah, tours yeah. were huge. Tours are huge, but even in the... Because he... There was a whole backstory about Springsteen and falling out with the record company and all the rest. And basically all he could do to make money was, was tour. Gig. And that's what he okay. did all the way through the 70s. And he ran a really tight ship. So he had it right down. This is, yes. this is basically how I'm yeah. going to make my crust. He was and that's why he was called Boss as well. And it basically... Because a bit of a bollocks. He was a bit of a bollocks to, to work for her, apparently. Yeah. Well, that's okay. But, but, he, but, it, he, but you know... Well, here we have... So just so you know, right, the next time you see economists, Bruce Springsteen, if you're listening, Bruce, I know if you don't make in the rock and roll, you could easily be a hedge fund manager. You could easily be the Ashbury <laughs> Park. Asbury Park. Asbury Park, Hedge Funds, Inc. Okay. Yeah. But, so, I, I, but what he's also doing is he's playing how many dates here next next year? Two, three, four nights, whatever it is. I would be. A hundred and something quid yeah, a ticket. No, that's ridiculous. Come on, Bruce. Well, listen, man, I will be listening to Italian disco while you are stomping around with your middle-of-the-road American rock and roll, okay? Italian disco is where it is. And we're going to talk about Italy later on, but not the Italian disco, unfortunately, the Italian bond market. But my point is, Bruce Springsteen showed how it's done. The NTMA, all these people in Ireland, are borrowing geniuses, yeah. didn't avail of the market when it was there. Your man was singing about love and life and the whole thing. Blue collar stuff. Got it right. So fair play to you, Bruce. Now, the reason I talked about Bruce Springsteen and the bond market is because the entire financial world centered on the bond market. And the reason the entire financial world is centered on the bond market is people have always believed that the bond market is risk-free. This is one of the biggest mistakes in financial markets. And this week in London, what we saw was the UK bond market actually seizing up and pension funds in the UK actually running out of money. And this is what happened during a week where the news in the UK, there was just so much news that people couldn't disentangle what was important, what was not, what was politics, what was sham, what was bias, etc. I'm going to tell you that this podcast is going to explain to you what actually happened, how close the UK was to financial Armageddon in the last four or five days, but also how it's all very well sitting aside and saying, look at the UK. Same thing could happen all over Europe. It could happen in the States. It could happen anywhere. And the reason is an entire generation of financial market players have been brought up with interest rates at zero or 1%. They have no idea how to deal with a world of interest rates at 5 or 6%. And that is the shock. The shock is as much psychological as financial. 
So now what we're going to do, we're going to go to London. We're going to talk to Jumana Berseche, who is a CNBC reporter, former banker. This is a woman who knows this market inside out. We're going to get deep into the woods or into the weeds, as the Americans say. We're going to explain the bond market, and then John and I are going to have a chat. So let's go to Jumana in London. Jumana, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Uh, you know what? I'm a little tired, David. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's been a really crazy week. I actually started the week off in Italy on Monday because I was there covering the Italian elections. And we thought on Monday morning that the biggest story for the week was going to be the election of a, a center-right government in Italy and that that was going to drive all of the price action. But no, no, no. No, no, that was a side story. Lo and behold, by the time I landed in London on Monday afternoon, the Bank of England had just put out a statement. And uh, yeah, from then on, I was basically standing outside the Bank of England every day for the rest of the week in very, very cold weather, I should add as well. It was oh, quite OK, cold. well, for, for listeners, uh, Jumana is from Lebanon. Now, you will know that Lebanon has been featured in this podcast more than once because of yours truly going to Lebanon first on his holliers and then to make some television. And of course, there are many things about Lebanon we could talk about, but one is the fact that Lebanese people are not designed genetically to sit no. outside the Bank of England mm-hmm. in four degrees and rain. Us paddies, yeah, that's all all day. That's what we do, okay? Just, <laughs> without a brolly. Without a brolly, it's fine. You know, but the, However, yeah. I want to get to you about the UK. Okay, number one, yeah. what yeah. happened? Number two, and, and yeah. this is what I really want to get to the nuts and bolts of, right, is... Yeah. The Bank of England, and -hmm. it's very important because the whole world is leveraged on bonds. The Bank Mm -hmm. of England intervened hugely in order to preserve what they called the financial system. Explain to me, what the hell went on? So the Brits announced this big budget. Everyone goes, okay, that's all very well, but frankly, it doesn't look credible. Take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think you're right to start out with the mini budget because up until that point, we had started to see... UK assets come under pressure, but not to the extent as uh, how much we saw after that budget was announced. And the catalyst there was not the measures that were announced to deal with the energy crisis situation, that 60 billion pounds. No, because that was pretty much expected out of it. The big surprise was the 45 billion pounds worth of unfunded tax cuts, which are expected to structurally shift UK borrowing much higher over the next couple of years and for it to remain so. And out of that budget, there wasn't any medium fiscal term plan to bring those debt to GDP ratios down. So that spooked out guilt investors. And for the first time, Friday, Monday, Tuesday in trading, what you saw is something called a bear steepening of the UK guilt curve, which means okay. in English. Yeah, exactly. All, yeah, exactly. No, no, I'll explain. So all yields are moving higher because we had this you know, sort of fixed income sell-off phenomenon taking place. And it started accelerating after the mini budget. After Friday, the long end of the curve. Okay, so this is these are bonds that you, like I say, I'm, I'm lending and are borrowing for 20 years. Yes, 20 okay. years plus. Okay. This is the, the, the UK Treasury, the bonds that they issue having, uh, you know, they issue a variety of durations. But what happened after Friday is the bonds with the longest duration, so 20 year, 25 year, 30 year, 40 year. And actually in this country, they issue 50 year as well started getting hit the hardest, okay. which was a very interesting phenomenon to witness. And it is unusual in an environment where the Bank of England is saying, we're going to start hiking interest rates very aggressively to deal with the inflation problem that we have. So something was broken, right? That was okay. the first sign that something was wrong. And if you look at the extent of the moves in about two trading days, 
those bonds sold off 100 basis points, which is huge, a full one percentage point move in 24 hours, unprecedented. So the Bank of England saw this and they thought, okay, we've got to do something because this market is becoming extremely dysfunctional. Now, let me just talk you through the sequencing because we had the mini budget on Friday. Yeah. We had that sharp sell-off in gilts and the pound getting hit as well. By Monday morning in Asian session, the pound versus the dollar reached an all-time record low. Throughout the course of Monday, lots of people in the market thought, okay, well, maybe the Bank of England have to intervene to do something to support the currency. Okay. Monday afternoon, the Bank of England put out a statement. The MPC committee, this is the, the committee in the Bank of England that are tasked with monetary policy per se. So ensuring that inflation gets back to two percentage points. They put out a statement saying, we're watching market movements very, very closely. We will not hesitate to act to bring inflation back down to two percentage points. But they didn't come out with an emergency rate hike. And some people, as I mentioned, thought they might do that to support the currency. In effect, what they did is they deferred the decision to their next monetary policy committee decision on November the 3rd. So that was Monday, okay? okay? The guilt sell-off continued. So those these longer-dated bonds continued to move higher in yields. Tuesday, we had a warning from the IMF, you remember that. Yep. So the IMF came out and, and warned about the UK's fiscal situation. By Wednesday, the Bank of England had put out another statement. But, and here's the big distinction here, this was put out by the Financial Policy Committee. This is the committee within the Bank of England that are tasked with ensuring financial stability, this smooth transition of monetary policy and orderly market functioning. So they saw the wreckage that had happened in the long end of the UK curve. And they said, okay, we're going to come in. We're going to buy up to 5 billion pounds of bonds, long duration bonds for the next 13 days. That's a total envelope of up to 65 billion pounds. And the reason we're doing it is to restore market functionality. Okay, so so let's so basically, you, first of all, you've had a currency shock, and people yes. are and, and because everybody focuses on the currency because it's the pound in your pocket, etc. All the news media, maybe was talking about sterling, sterling, sterling. But at the same time, what is happening is probably not investors. It's probably short sellers are selling the gilt market. I presume at this stage, right? So there was a bit of that before. The interesting thing about the UK bond market, so the gilts, I'm just going to call them gilts yeah. if I can. <laughs> so the UK gilt market. It's, it's, called, it's about, called UK exceptionalism. It's always the thing. Like everyone else calls it a bond, but they call it a gilt. Okay. Yeah. So it's about a third, a third, a third is roughly the ownership. So a third of the gilts are owned by the Bank of England because of years of quantitative easing. Yep. A third is owned by overseas investors. And a third is owned by domestic investors. Okay. The last one is the one I want to talk about. The Let's talk about them. Because that was the main reason for the Bank of England to want to get involved in the long end of the duration curve. And this is why. Let's talk about the pension funds. The pension fund community in the UK, their assets have pretty much trebled over the last 10 years. They've gone from about 500 billion pounds to 1.5 trillion pounds wow. in assets. Just to give you context, the total size of the UK guild market is 2.3 trillion pounds. Okay. Now, these UK pension funds, they obviously have long dated liabilities again. So, you know, you have your pension pot, you know that at some point in the future, when you retire, 
with defined benefits, you're set to receive a scheduled payout that isn't determined by market conditions, right? So that pool is already set, but the value of the pool changes based on where interest rates are. So the higher interest rates are, the lower the present value is going to be because of the discounting effect. So actually the reason this is, I'm getting a bit wonky, but the reason I bring this up is because higher interest rates are actually a good thing, quote unquote, from a liability perspective, because it means that the total value of what you have to pay out in the future has become less. So you have to own less assets against it. So actually before all of this kicked off, and this is being lost, I think, in some of the media discussion, UK pension funds were actually in a relatively good shape from a hedge perspective. I think four out of five pension funds were actually overfunded. So they had more assets than they had liabilities, which puts them in a good situation. So when they have these long-dated liabilities, what assets do they hold against? Well, they'll hold a bit of private equity, they'll hold a bit of equities, but the bulk of it, and the estimate is about 1 trillion pounds out of that 1.5 trillion, is held in gilts and in UK corporate bonds. So they're heavily invested in the part of the curve that the Bank of England intervened in. So what happened is once these moves started becoming very disorderly and very sharp, these pension funds who had put on levered positions, and I can explain that in a moment. Explain that in a sec, yep. Yep. Started receiving margin calls from their counterparties saying, look, the value of the collateral that you've posted has dropped so much. We need you to cough up some cash in order to meet your margin requirements. And these pension funds were simply not able to get liquid assets fast enough to meet the scale of the margin calls that they were receiving. So this is all happening Monday, Tuesday of last week. Just so we know. So you've got... A pension fund which has a huge pool of assets, like Irish, it could be Irish Life, it could be New Ireland, it could be any of these, right? And they, of course, but they have borrowed against those assets and bought more of the same assets, right? So it's a doubling down on the on bond markets. Okay, exactly. So it's something called a repo. Okay, and this is very common for for those players. You you buy a bond. I mean, it's just very common in bond markets. So you, you, you buy a bond and then you pledge that bond as collateral versus your counterparty in exchange for cash. And your counterparty will take a haircut depending on how volatile the underlying asset is. So let, let me give you numbers, always easier numbers. I buy a hundred pounds worth bonds. Yeah. I give those bonds or I, I repo those bonds out to my counterparty. So you're so you're basically going to a bank and you're saying, here's yes. collateral. Uh, can exactly. I have cash? Okay, like like, exactly. like a normal person would do. You're remortgaging exactly. you're remortgaging the shop. You're remortgaging the house. Yeah. And then I get, let's say instead of a hundred pounds, I get 90 pounds back. Okay. So then because that's the haircut, the the value of the risk that the yeah. counterparty that's the cushion the counterparty wants to, to that's keep. That's the cushion. And then I've got 90 pounds. So then what do I do? I go buy another guild and then I do the same thing again. So it just sort of turbo effects, right? Yeah. So they're sitting on all of these levered plays of bonds in, in, in their portfolio. And then the value of that portfolio starts sharply declining. And so one, one thing that I flagged, actually yesterday I put out a tweet about it, is that the initially this wasn't a solvency issue. This was a liquidity issue. But as we know, obviously liquidity issues do eventually become solvency issues. But Primarily on Monday, Tuesday, it was a liquidity issue. And these pension funds literally just had a cash flow problem. So the Bank of England came in to restore some stability to that market so that these pension funds could have a couple of weeks to generate the cash 
to meet the margin calls that were required yeah. of them. Okay. And that's kind of what happened. So the Bank of England said they were going to buy up to 5 billion pounds of bonds a day. On the first day, they only had to buy 1 billion. It's a bit like one of those, like an, the ECB OMT. It's almost one of those things that they threaten to do, but yeah, the threat once, once not- they threaten, it's, it's a bit like a bank run. You know, the thing about a bank run is that the bank, there's a run in the bank if you expect there to be no money in the ATM. The minute somebody says, you know what, don't worry, there is money in the ATM, the bank run subsides. Exactly. Because, because it's a psychological well, thing. It's a, it's, a psych- it's a psychological. It's so so much of that is psychological. So just to give you an idea, I was looking at one of the bonds this morning. So the six the bonds that mature in 2061, they got to a high of 4.8 percent on Tuesday. They're now trading down at 3.3 percent. So we've rallied back 150 basis points from this intervention from Bank of England. So, I mean, I guess you could say they've been successful, but you know, we've got to see how this all plays out with the pension fund community. But remember, this is just one part of what the Bank of England have done this week. So this is, you see, for listeners, this is what Bismarck was asked, how does democracy work? And he said, it's a little bit like making sausages. You really don't want to see what goes on in the process. Just eat the sausages, right? And this is the same idea about financial markets, okay? This is why we're going into what the Americans call a deeper dive, simply because most of us don't think, you buy a pension, you say, okay, fine. And you buy one of the big, in, in the case of Ireland, an Irish insurance company or the UK, and you don't really think, and there's... You know, you turn on the news and there's a crisis in the currency. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. It's over there. I'm not really an exporter. It doesn't really bother me. You know, frankly, you know, if, if it means that traveling abroad is going to be a bit more expensive, I can deal with that. But what we don't see is the sausage making. And this yeah. is what we're talking about. This is the unpleasant, the entrails of the financial system. One of my favorite tweets this week was from, have I got news for you? That was quite witty, but, but this one I thought was really good. Economists pray for a swift end to the financial crisis. As sooner or later, it will become apparent that absolutely nobody understands how bonds work. <laughs> exactly. And that, exactly. So the whole point of today's podcast, and I, I do apologize to some listeners, right, who are used to much more zippy and zangy and top line things, is basically to explain the bond market. And the reason reason I want to do this is I have a fear that we are in what they call a doom loop for bonds. Yeah. So what happened, and this comes from my time working in the central bank. I remember working in the Irish central bank during a currency crisis, right? And what you realize, everything is interlinked and everything's interwoven. Lots of stuff are on the never, never. And there's a whole sense of it'll be okay, right? But what we saw in the UK, and I believe, and maybe you can come back on this issue, I believe that the reason the IMF got so antsy is the IMF are thinking, look, they don't actually care really about the UK, but what they're thinking is what's going on in the UK could go on everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, And by the way, uh, just on that point, S&P also put uh, the UK on negative outlook yesterday as well. So so it's not just the IMF, you know, people everywhere are taking note of what's happened. I think, you know, when I was saying at the beginning, and perhaps I got too much into the weeds, the difference between the Financial Policy Committee and the MPC Committee is because when you think about central banks and what central banks' mandates are, they're just tasked essentially with ensuring that inflation stays at, at an adequate rate of around two percentage points. And now, globally, central banks are in a situation where inflation is running at extremely high levels, let's say, you know, 10 percentage points in, in most countries in Europe right now, which is a full eight percentage points where it's supposed to be, which uh, on paper, you know, if they're doing what it says on the 10, they've got to hike quite aggressively to get inflation back to those levels again. 
But all of that is going to come at a cost to the economy as well. And the main issue here is, you know, what happened in the UK is it almost they had to subvert their price stability mandate. Sure, to bail out. Exactly. In the name of a dysfunctional, of of dealing with a dysfunctional market. So the the contradictory thing that happened in the Bank of England announcement this week is they've said we are going to start tightening, hiking interest rates, and also selling down, selling down 80 billion pounds worth of gilts that we own because of quantitative easing on an annual basis. They had scheduled this to happen. It was going to happen. Two days later, they announced that they're buying 65 billion pounds of gilts, long end gilts, to restore market functionality. And that is the doom loop because the more governments go out with this fiscal expansion and come out with these unfunded tax cuts like they did in the UK, for example, the more pressure there's going to be on issuance at a time when inflation is very high, at a time when central banks are looking to hike, but that could really cause a lot of damage, as we saw in the UK, which puts more pressure on the central banks to restore some normalcy. And so this is why many players in the market thought, well, it's going to be impossible for these central banks to sell down their assets or sell down the, the, the bonds that they own, and at the same time, hike aggressively, because it will just unleash mayhem. And so the, the big question is, it's all very well central banks, okay, we're coming to a close. You know, who's going to buy these assets, right? So you, the, let, let, let's, we're going to focus on the UK because you have a current account deficit, which means yeah. your living standard is rented, not earned. Okay, you're borrowing all the time. You have a massive budget deficit, and that's an ideological shift. And unless our friends, trust, and our mates do a total U-turn, which is unlikely, they're going to do this. You have a currency that has proved itself to be very unstable. It goes up, it goes down, it's unstable. You have long-term interest rates going up because of inflation, and you have a central bank that needs to actually try and get, as you said, inflation down to 2% over, let's say, a two- or three-year period, because it ain't going to happen very, very quickly, right? Yeah. Who buys the UK in this world? Yeah. I, I mean, it's the question I've been asking as well, because as we said at the beginning, a third of the guilds are owned by Bank of England. Not only are they, in theory, no longer buying, <laughs> except for this week, they're selling. So, so that's one participant gone. Overseas investors up until a couple of months ago were very happy to buy the UK market. They switched to selling over the last couple of months. And I think what's happened over the last couple of months, and you hear it, you know, the likes of international players, you know, Ken Griffin from Citadel was on Delivering Alpha, the CNBC Delivering Alpha conference. And he was saying, look, this is really unprecedented because it is a major market economy losing credibility in international investors' eyes. It's not easy to bring that credibility back once it's lost. This is exactly what I look. So you're absolutely, it's a major market. It was, it was the, it was the reserve currency in people's lifetimes. And, you know, in in our parents' lifetimes, it was the reserve currency. You know, if you take bad decisions all the time and you do that constantly over a five or six year period, as I believe the UK has done, eventually your credibility diminishes. Now you're, you're Lebanese. You see what happens in a small country when mm-hmm. credibility disappears. Yeah. I, I believe your husband's Argentinian, right? We were yeah. down in Argentina, and I remember making the point to John that Britain was going to turn into Argentina, and people said that couldn't happen, right? There's obviously lots and lots of things going on in the UK that make a difference, but mm-hmm. 
Can mm. we just end with that idea that good countries can go bad? Yes. I mean, yeah, most, most certainly. And I think, you know, there are a couple of things I would say to watch out for here. The UK government is scheduled to give its actual formal budget on November the 23rd. And what the market really wants to see is that they have a grasp of how dire the public finances situation is and that they have some sort of a plan to bring down debt to GDP over the medium term. That's, that's really what investors need to see. And then also, you know, the Bank of England have to go big with the hike to, to support the currency and uh, reassure investors that they've got the inflation situation under control. But at the same time, need to ensure the smooth functioning of the guilt market. It's, it's a really difficult balancing act. I just want to say, because you were talking about the doom loop globally, you know, we've been talking a lot about Bank of England, but I mean, it's the same for everywhere. Precisely. Right? And, and then you see it now. I mentioned on Monday I was in Italy. You know, Europe is in a, in a bit of a hot spot as well. Remember, ECB had been running negative rates for a very, very long period of time. And so that artificially kept borrowing costs very low because they'd been engaging also in quantitative easing, buying up bonds of all of these countries. And now that's set to reverse. And these countries, by the way, are sitting on much higher debt to GDP levels than the UK. As UK is not at 100 percent, it's about 95 percentage point. Italy is at 150 percentage points. But this is where I wanted to go before we go, right? So it's all very well to say it's the UK, the UK, and the UK has got its own specific idiosyncratic problems, okay? And they're deep and they're cultural and they're political and they're Brexit-related, all that stuff, right? But you flip to Italy, you flip to Spain, you flip to, you know, countries like France, all these countries have precisely the same game going on, which has been the pension funds have been, have been you know, buying the bonds of the country, going to banks, repoing those, buying more bonds, et cetera, et cetera. The central bank, the European Central Bank has been involved initially at least three or four times in the last couple of years. Yeah. To what extent is this, are we talking about in the next little while, contagion? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really valid point because I I watch, for example, where Italian bond yields are trading on an absolute level. They're about four and a half percentage points. But um, on a, by the way, four and a half percentage points is the highest they've been since the European financial crisis. Yeah, because since 2012. Because obviously base rates are a lot higher than they were. On a spread basis, we're about 250 basis points to Germany. Back in 2018, which is the last Italian elections we had, when we had, if you remember, an anti-establishment party called Five Star Movement come in and allied themselves with another anti-establishment party. They were deemed to be, you know, not European friendly. Back then, the spread got as wide as 300. So, you know, you probably got a bit more to go. But even at the peak of the European financial crisis, European sovereign crisis, that spread got to 500 basis points. So we are actually at quite uncomfortable levels yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ECB have also said, you know, when they started talking about hiking earlier on this year, they realized that the reaction was pretty extreme in the likes of countries like Italy. And they said, well, we won't be able to get away with these hikes without, again, creating some form of a doom loop. So they created something called an anti-fragmentation tool. They said, you know, if there is an unwarranted, what they call... It's, all, it's, almost, it's almost Putin-esque. It sounds like almost a special military operation. It literally is. It's a special bond operation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to annex part of the Italian bond, bond market. The bond exactly. exactly. <laughs> the the, the donets of the Italian bond market. <laughs> and, and so they said, so long as Italy sort of behaves in line with the EU fiscal rules, etc., and there is an unwarranted spread widening, then the ECB can always step in to support that bond market. 
um, which isn't that dissimilar to, to what the Bank, the Bank of England. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. They're they're in this weird situation where they have to hike, but also buy bonds at the same time. That doesn't lead to mayhem. So just before you go, let's go back to Beirut. Okay, let's go back to Lebanon. And, and Irish people remember what happened here when the housing market collapsed. We went from being very rich to very poor in two days. People say, well, well how did that happen, right? The banking system collapsed, and et cetera, et cetera. Lebanon, you go from a situation, you've got a, a reasonably strong currency, people are going out there buying stuff, et cetera, to banks collapsing. What mm. is it like to live or have your parents or your family in a country where the financial market goes from stability to mayhem? It's horrible. I... I, I don't think people appreciate how, how difficult the transition has been. As you mentioned, the currency was artificially pegged to the dollar for a very, very long time. It was too strong. It was always too strong. Back when I grew up in Lebanon, $1 was equivalent to 1,500 Lebanese lira. It's now about 30,000. So $1 is worth 30,000. The World Bank estimates that about 65% of the population are now living below the poverty line. Wow. It, it is immense what has yeah. happened in Lebanon. It is extremely sad. And, you know, th- there are loads, a whole bunch of issues we can talk about there. But I think, you know, that wasn't just a monetary phenomenon. It's mainly a political phenomenon because of really bad decision making by people in power and a lot of corruption. But but yeah, it makes the country unlivable. Like you, you go into a shop at the beginning of the month and buy a loaf of bread. At the end of the month, the loaf of bread costs a little bit more because it, the, the inflation is is happening so quickly that it's difficult for shops shopkeepers to keep up with. Yeah, no, I, I mean the, the the fascinating thing is, I mean Lebanon's an extreme outlier, Argentina is an extreme outlier, yeah. but right now we're talking about Pakistan. We're talking, no, there are many many millions of people around the world living in situations of financial calamity that yeah. were living in situations of relative security not that long yeah. ago. And when I look at the UK, I'm not saying the UK is going to go that way, but the point is finance can be very unforgiving. Yes. It can happen very, very quickly and you can lose control very quickly. Yes. Yeah. And I think also these many, many years of low negative interest rates have artificially inflated financial assets everywhere and, and inflated debt everywhere because you've managed to borrow at such low borrowing costs for such a long time. And we've all been warning that there's going to be a day of reckoning. Seems like we're getting close to that point now. Jumana, on that very, very uplifting note, that's <laughs> extremely <laughs> uplifting. <laughs> Listen, that was fantastic. That was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. As I said, we got into the weeds, we got into the sausage making. But you know what? The funny thing about finance, you've got to understand what's going on. And, yeah. and as you said, many economists have a rashers. <laughs> Jumana, we will talk to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. 
Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, Mac, I can't pretend that I understood all of that. <laughs> It, it was, it was about, stuff. It was it was about four stuff. years of corporate finance in university in 20 minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So don't worry your head. My head is spinning, Your actually. head is melted. <laughs> I'll explain it to you. Don't be worried about it. But come here, there's, there are a few things that I wanted to ask you about. Number one, you know, after what they're calling kamikaze yeah. <laughs> economics, but after the crash of, of Sterling, it has recovered now. Yeah. And that's simply because the Bank of England is intervening, is buying stuff. So is basically, buy, buying all the bonds. Yeah, it's buying. It's also buying the currency as well. Right. So, so what what the Bank of England has, has come in is they've said they're buying the bonds. Now, when you're buying bonds, right? You know, basically, what the Bank of England is trying to stabilize the bond market. It's also buying the currency. It's called foreign exchange intervention. So the Bank of England sits on foreign reserves. Yeah. And when the Bank of England decides, okay, we're going to stabilize sterling, what they come into is they sell their foreign reserves. They buy sterling in the market. So that generates a demand for sterling in the market. Yeah. When the financial markets see the Bank of England buying sterling, what they think is, okay, wait a sec, are we going to bet against the Bank of England? Because it's always got more firepower than us. Yeah. So those speculators, what they do is they cover their shorts, right? They have short positions, they cover them, they square their positions, and they disappear from the market. Okay? <laughs> okay. Right? And the Bank of England, so that's why sterling's going back up. It's also going back up because everyone thinks, okay, hold on a second. The Bank of England has already said it's going to increase interest rates, right? So let's say British interest rates go to 5 or 6%, which is where people believe they will end up, right? Yeah. That means vis-a-vis, for example, European rates, which are now only forecast to go up by 2%, it means it will be a 3% free. If you can buy sterling yeah. and you think sterling is going to stabilize, you're getting 3% more yield over European. So there's there's a natural demand for the UK. Okay. But the problem is, the problem is, all of this is artificially well, maintained I'm just... because, because exactly what Jumana was saying, it's the, it's the Bank of England buying everything. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. That's it's a massive say. Bank of England bailout of the bond market. But but also it means that they've spent their whole reserves. Well, this is why the and... IMF, this is why the IMF could eventually come into the UK because they might run out of reserves, right? Yeah. Because eventually, the thing is, you can print your own currency. You can't print anybody else's currency. Yeah. So at a certain stage, the UK are going to have to actually come up with not just a credible system, but a four or five year plan that makes sense so that they bring down inflation. Yeah. They bring down the current account deficit. They stabilize the currency. All the while, the UK housing market, right? Again, this this, this bond mathematics sounds esoteric to us, right? Mm. And because it's our pension fund, we think, oh, okay, fair enough. Okay, it's pensions, right? Imagine you are now a UK homeowner, right? And lots and lots of people that I know of our generation who bought their houses in the 90s, right? 
And those houses were quite cheap in the UK, right? Yeah. Or in the 2000s, right? And then what happened, maybe their kids grew up and they remortgaged the house, right? To pay for college fees. Because okay, you know, the UK is very expensive for all that sort of stuff, right? The, you said, well, I don't want my kids having a student loan, so which is about 10 or 12 grand a year, mm. blah, blah. So all those people have remortgaged, but they remortgaged their houses or, or bits of their houses at 1%. They're going to have to finance that at 5%. Yeah, right? That yeah. means exactly like the Bruce Springsteen mathematics. Yeah, 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 I was going it's to say, yeah. It's exactly the same as the Bruce Springsteen mathematics. House prices have to fall in the UK. They can't rise. Mm. They have to fall. They're already been falling. And of course, if the house prices fall, if the Tories can't deliver house price inflation, they lose. That's the only trick they have. Right, okay. Especially they say to all the, all, all the Red Trouser Brigade, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. worry, your house prices are going up, vote for us, right? Yeah. This is why I think that we're talking about a party that is in ruins. And you remember we talked, I remember we said about Argentina. And I yes. said it can't happen. One of my points is that good countries can go bad, not quickly, but if you keep making these bad decisions time and time and time and time and time again, it does erode your credibility. But I mean, what Jumana was saying is, and this is the interesting, is these bond crises, I will think we're going into a winter of bond crises in Europe. Right. And what does that mean then? Well, that means you see exactly what she was explaining, right? Yeah. So all this, this game of pension funds buying bonds, the Brits call them gilts, but they're actually the same thing. Right. And the reason they buy bonds is they're perceived to be more secure than equities, right? So they buy bonds, but they don't just sit in those bonds. They, what they call, they repo those bonds, which means basically it's, they give the bonds to a bank. The bank gives them cash, Right. And then what they do is they buy more bonds. So loads and loads of pension funds, or most pension I actually, actually say every pension fund yeah. has this extraordinary amount of borrowing that they're sitting on. Now, what happens with all that borrowing is the thing called margin call. If the price of those assets, those bonds falls, right, the people who lent you the money, the banks, will say, well, hold on a second. We want more security now yeah. because those assets have fallen value. Yeah, of course, we want yeah. a cushion. We want collateral. Now, what do you do if you if there's a margin call? You need to raise cash. But if you're only sitting on bonds, you need to sell bonds. So this is the doom loop. So bond prices are falling. You're told you've got to raise cash. The only way you can get cash is sell your assets. The only asset you have is bonds. So you're selling more. So that's how you get into this doom loop that basically the crisis precipitates, more selling precipitates, more selling. And we're back to our friend, the Minsky moment. Right, right? yes. And then only... The only backstop in the whole thing is the central bank. So the ECB in our case. Now, the ECB can therefore do what the Bank of England has just done, which is bail out the Italians or bail out the Greeks, or maybe even bail out us. Who knows, right? I mean, at the moment, Ireland looks really pretty and all is good. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the Irish economy on Thursday's podcast. I'm going to digest what exactly happened last week, what exactly this week, and where Ireland goes. But, you know, Portugal, Spain... Italy, Greece, all these countries have exactly the same systemic risks as the UK. They just don't have as mad politicians, okay? Like your one Maloney is much less mad than Liz, Liz Trust. I, I know her, I just like the fact, the fact she's actually called Maloney, okay? It's like Mrs. Maloney, Miss Maloney. But at the end of the day, John, if you have bad politics and over-leveraged finance at a time when economies are actually struggling, You've got chaos.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively, but not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.